so what we're going to do tonight, we're going to work through the book of Haggai. Uh, and the way I'm going to kind of roll through this, oh, and the kids can be dismissed, by the way. I'm sorry. Uh, I was afraid I'd forget that. Um, I'm going to give you kind of a quick um, background context. And then we're going to look through the outline quickly. And then we're going to march through the book together. I did uh, put some notes together this week. Um, before you say anything, yes, I know that the back of the page did not print the way the front did. Um, if you would like to share with me your secrets of printing success, I am uh, happy to listen because I could not get it to print correctly. But nonetheless, I miss Michael's uh, PowerPoints, and I just felt like this may help us uh, kind of stay together. So, so we've been working through the Minor Prophets uh, together, and we've got two more to go after Haggai. So we've got Zephaniah, or Zechariah and Malachi. And uh, let's see if I can get my notes together here. Years prior to Haggai, the prophets have been continually warning the Jews uh, of what was going to happen, that they were going to be destroyed and be exiled. Well, come to Haggai, it's happened. Their city has been destroyed and they've been exiled. So Babylon did this. Actually, Babylon started the siege in 608 BC, but the, the date we have been giving you guys this entire time has been 586. And the reason that is the date that most people refer to is it's the date that Babylon actually destroyed the temple. And that's a really big deal. It, it's a really big deal in, in Israel's history. It's a really big deal because back then, and we'll kind of talk through some of this tonight, um, where God met his people was in the temple. And Solomon's temple was the first temple. It was the most magnificent temple there was. It, was, uh, it, it stood in all its grandeur in the center of the city. And so when Babylon came in in 586, it was destroyed. And not only was the temple destroyed, but the walls of Jerusalem were destroyed. Every significant building was destroyed. There was a lot of burning. A lot of the temple objects were destroyed. Um, and, and the land basically was decimated at this point, uh, almost unlivable. And as you can imagine, a lot of death happened. So with those that were still living, Babylon took them back to their homeland. So Israel, everything that the prophets had been saying up to this point, Israel uh, has happened to Israel. So uh, the final temple destruction, as, as many commentators would say, was, was a continual reminder of the spiritual failures of Israel. If you know anything about the history of Israel, they continue to disobey, and then God rescues them, and they repent, and then things are pretty good for a while, and then they disobey, and then God comes and rescues them, and then they repent, and it's kind of this over and over and over kind of uh, cyclical uh, situation. And so a lot of commentators say that when that, as you can imagine, temple fell, and the Israelites were to think about it, it was this continual reminder of their spiritual condition. Fast forward to Haggai. So here we are, we're in Haggai. Babylon was the one that destroyed the first temple. Babylon was the one that took Israel into exile. Babylon's gone, okay? The Medo-Persian Empire, Persia, has come in and destroyed Babylon. Now, this is really important for a number of reasons. Uh, but Cyrus is a name you might recognize from history. Cyrus is mentioned quite a bit in the Old Testament. Cyrus was the, the first leader that actually overtook Babylon. In fact, in the history books, it's typically referred to as his greatest triumph. And Cyrus was much different than most of his predecessors. Cyrus was the people's leader. He was the liberator of peoples. And so uh, he sought very hard to uh, keep that perception. And a part of doing that is what he did is he permitted previously captured peoples to go back to their homeland. So Cyrus comes in, takes over, and he tells Israel, you can go back home. And he didn't just say you can go back home. He actually said, I will finance some of the rebuilding. I hope you rebuild your city. I hope you rebuild the temple. And so Israel is pretty happy, as you can imagine. Uh, a lot of this is in Ezra, by the way. So I'm going to give you some verses here as we go, if you want to go kind of read on some of this. 
So a couple leaders make their run after Cyrus. Obviously, Cyrus doesn't last forever. A couple leaders make their run. Um, and when you get to the book of Haggai, a guy by the name of Darius is in charge. Still Persia, okay? Darius, Persia, 522, enters Haggai. Haggai is the prophet of hope. He's the prophet of the new Jerusalem, the prophet of the new kingdom. And so we've worked through a number of books, particularly Nahum isn't uh, the happiest of books. Um, Haggai is here on the scene to say, be encouraged, be hopeful. This is not the end. So Haggai comes in. Not much is really known about him specifically. In fact, outside of the book of Haggai, the only place he's mentioned is in Ezra chapter 5 and 6. So not a, lot of, a lot, not a lot's known about him. A word study on his name's pretty cool. We don't have time to get into that. And the book Haggai itself is often overlooked. It's the second shortest book, uh, I think only rivaled by Obadiah. So um, I think I've only heard one sermon in my entire life ever preached on Haggai. Um, in fact, I told Michael today, I don't really know why that is because it's a pretty cool book. Um, it's not like it's... It's super difficult to work through. This uh, country boy um, from Georgia can figure it out, so I feel very trusting that you can. Um, And so uh, when when we come into the book of Haggai, the Israelites have returned home, and most would say somewhere around 45 to 50,000 came back. The others stayed in Babylon. They have settled there. Um, At this point, Persia's in in, in charge, so it's, it's probably pretty decent to live. And they were led by two guys. They were led by the high priest Joshua, and they were led by a, a governing leader by the name of Zerubbabel. And so, in fact, Zerubbabel was from the line of David. We'll touch on that as well. And, and these guys lead Israel back to their city to rebuild. And the book of Haggai is four prophetic sermons or four prophetic callings or points from Haggai to the Israelites as they are literally rebuilding their lives. So let that sink in for a minute. You've been in Babylon, another place, language, culture. Your temple's been destroyed. You're continually reminded of spiritual failure. 70 years, roughly. Now you're back home, and Haggai comes on the scene, and he's giving you this message, if you were an Israelite, as you are rebuilding your city. He gave these in roughly about five months, August time frame to December in 520. Zechariah, by the way, is actually preaching at the same time. Pastor Michael will walk through some of that next week, uh, but just to kind of give you a context of where the prophets are. So quick outline, you should see it in your notes there. Uh, Chapters 1, verses 1 through 11, it's time to rebuild the temple. Chapter 1, 12 through 15a, the people actually listen. They obey God, which is actually historically what Israel does. They get into major trouble, and then they're ready to listen, which is probably something that you and I can relate to pretty easily as well. Chapters 1, 15b through 2, 9, and I gave you some Ezra passages, or I will if it's not in your notes. The glory of the rebuilt temple will far surpass Solomon's temple. This will make more sense in just a minute. Chapter 2, verses 10 through 19. Disobedience produces uncleanliness, but obedience brings blessing. And then he closes the book, just two chapters, with the idea that the Lord is raising up a new leader. So let me pray for us and we'll hop in together. Gracious God, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that we have the opportunity to worship through studying your word. And Lord, I do thank you that your word is truth. And so, Lord, I pray now that you would help me rightly divide your word. But most of all, I pray, Lord, that you would help us glorify you as we listen and study. And may your spirit apply it to our lives. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So as I was preparing this week, I ran across an article that was entitled, The 12 Most Important Things in Life. So you're getting a bonus tonight, okay? Take good notes here, because not only are you going to learn about the book of Haggai, but I'm going to give you the 12 most important things in life. Just kidding, but I am going to read them to you. Um, So here they are, in order, by the way, um, which I'll make a funny joke. At least it was funny to me. Uh, Health, 
family, friends, love, purpose, passion, wellness, education, time, and oh yeah, water, food, and sleep. It's kind of interesting those are at the end because couldn't really have the others without those three. Uh, but those are the most important things in life. And I don't know that it would be super hard for us to look around and see our world absolutely pursuing after uh, those things, right? Um, <clears throat> interestingly enough, as I worked through this article, I was really reminded of the overwhelming statistics in our world related to depression, related to suicide, sadly. Uh, extremely high statistics, by the way, especially in the midst of COVID. And really what we see in culture around us, demonstrated by a number of, of things, is the world is full of a lot of unsatisfied and discontented people. So you read down this list of things that are the most important things in the world, but none of them satisfy. I mean, let's be honest. My heart's pretty prone to pursue a lot of those things over God, too. <clears throat> you get to Haggai, and the people of God are living in a place of perpetual frustration and discontentment. <clears throat> Look in verses 4 through 6. I'm not going to read them to you. <clears throat> but Haggai basically says, how have you fared? <clears throat> Another way to say this is consider your ways. In other words, think about it. The people are totally unsatisfied. They're back home, and what are they doing? They're building their houses. They're pursuing the comforts of life, all the while totally neglecting the temple of God and ultimately the glory of God. Verse 8. You can almost hear Haggai saying, are your houses and your comfort, are they really more important than the pursuit of God? Like, don't you remember what happened 70 years ago that caused the destruction in the first place? And by the way, they're not only just discontent, their land is super unproductive. In verses 4 through 6, Haggai echoes or references Deuteronomy 28, which are known as the covenant curses due to disobedience. I'll read you 28 verses 38 through 40. It says this, You will bring out a great amount of seed to the field, but you will gather in little because the locusts will devour it. You will plant and cultivate vineyards, but you will neither drink of the wine nor bring in the harvest, because the worm will eat it. You have olive trees throughout your territory, but you will not anoint yourself with the oil, because your olives will drop off prematurely. So the bulk of their lives, their efforts, their money, their energy, their schedules, their thoughts, are sold out to the pleasures of the world. I imagine it honestly, probably could have been pretty easy to do that for an Israelite. Remember, they'd been in Babylon, a pretty pagan culture for a long time. And furthermore, when you come back to a city that's been totally decimated, you're going to want to build your house, right? <clears throat> you got to sleep. You got to have somewhere to sleep. Regardless, there is no substitute for the glory of God. A pure covenant relationship with God is the only thing that will satisfy you. In other words, everything that those people wrote in that article will not satisfy you. John Piper says this, if you spend your time and energy seeking comfort and security from the world and do not spend yourself for the glory of God, every pleasure will leave its sour aftertaste of depression and guilt and frustration. So what's Haggai's remedy? <clears throat> Haggai says this in verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. In other words, get it together. Get your priorities in order. 
Stop pursuing things with all that you have that don't matter. Get to work on the temple and restore my glory as a priority in your life. How incredibly applicable this message is for us today. We're not Israel, by the way, but we are in the new covenant, and we'll talk through some of the covenants in a minute. And it's super easy for us to be totally distracted with vain pursuits. And then God sometimes be an afterthought. So what do the people do? Look at verses 12 through 15. They actually obey God. They actually listen. And they're motivated by Haggai's call. They properly fear the Lord or revere him, which, by the way, proper fear of God is what actually brings fruit. So they begin rebuilding. And the Lord speaks to his prophet, reminding his people that he's with them. He says, I'm with you. Don't forget, in your work, it's worth it. I'm with you. Yet something, something happens. In short order, the work slows, and there's some kind of discouragement going on. In verse 3 of chapter 2, in fact, Haggai begins encouraging them. He says, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Who, how do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? So there seems to be something that's happened. They started obeying God. They started rebuilding But something's holding them back at this point from pursuing obedience. And so what is it? We know from chapter 2, but also from further study in Ezra, that simply put, the people were discouraged because the new temple paled in comparison to Solomon's. Now stick with me. The modesty of the second temple, which is typically called that in the history, the modesty of the second temple was not encouraging to a people that were awaiting a coming king. Just 70 years prior, Solomon's temple, the first temple, stood right where they were standing trying to rebuild, and it was a beautiful temple. I mean, you can go read on Solomon's temple. It was magnificent. It was a grandeur to see. And here are these people rebuilding the second temple, and they're totally discouraged. They're not inspired. They're totally discouraged to the point of weeping. In fact, if you go to Ezra, the leaders wept because they began to see that their temple wasn't going to be as great as Solomon's. They felt hopeless. They were discouraged. And this led to lackadaisical work ethic and self-pity. And so in verse 3 of chapter 2, he says, How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Is this mindset of wasting time because they are unable to match the glory of Solomon's temple? So what do they do? They quit. Or at the very least, they're tempted to quit, which almost completely halts all their efforts. And I want to camp here for a minute. Um, I wish we were camping in the shade, but we're going to camp here for a minute. Can you relate to this just in the slightest bit? Does this speak to your experience, maybe even in the past week or in the coming week? I'll be honest. I doubt that many people that have ever attempted a work for God have trouble relating to this. Maybe, maybe in the work, your expectations weren't met. Maybe, maybe you, you're, you were suffering or you were fearful. Maybe you were tempted to compare your work to others' work, and it just paled in comparison to what others are doing. Whatever the case may be, I bet you, you can relate. Haggai's message is custom-built for your heart today. So what does Haggai say to the people of God? When they're discouraged and they're comparing and they're in self-pity and they're sad and they're weeping, what does Haggai say? 
hey, you stupid dummies, get it together. No. He says, let me encourage you. Let me push your mind to the future. Look at verse 4. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Now, I'm going to give you two purposes here that I think we find in the scriptures for why you should continue working, why they should continue working. Number one, the first of which is found in verse four and five. Simply put, God is with them. That's why they should continue working. The work is not in vain because the Lord stands by their side and he's with them. This reminds me of the Great Commission. When you get to Matthew chapter 28, I like to call it the indicative sandwich because at the beginning And at the end of the commission, there's two indicatives directly from the mouth of Jesus. The first one is this, all authority in heaven and earth is mine, Jesus says. And then at the end, he says, behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. And so Jesus says these to his people. The work that you are doing is worthy simply because it's worth it to God. It's worthy simply because God is with you. It's worthy simply because God himself is doing it with you. What he calls you to and is standing with you in is always worth it. And we can take that to the bank. Many have said we often build more than we see, and we must trust the Lord in our work as a joyful and a humble laborer pursuing to glorify God. The second purpose that we should continue work and that I think Israel is called to work is found in verses 5 through 9. In fact, it starts in 5 where he he references the covenant. He says, According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Yet once more in a little while... I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations come in, and I will fill the house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of the house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and I in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. I honestly almost just stopped my sermon there because when I read that, I'm just moved to a place of God's glory. Like he's powerful. Everything is his. And Haggai's saying, be encouraged. Keep working. In verse 5, he refers to the covenant. I've given you some notes here because we're going to take a little trip down Covenant Lane, and I thought it would be helpful for you to have something in front of you as we did this. He references the covenant that he made with them as they came out of Egypt. This is also known as the Mosaic Covenant. Piper helps us think through this pretty easily, and then I'll give you um, some definitions of the others. But the Mosaic Covenant, in summary then, is five divine promises to Israel, which which reconfirm the covenant to Abraham, by the way, back in Genesis. And here are the five things. That Israel will be God's special possession. That Israel will be a kingdom of priests to God. That Israel will be a holy nation. That God will fight for Israel and overcome all their enemies. And God will treat Israel with grace and mercy and forgive her sins. So Haggai's like, don't you remember what God said to you when he moved the earth? 
when he literally moved the water as you escaped Egypt? And the Mosaic Covenant further unfolds the Abrahamic Covenant. Just to remind our minds, what is the Abrahamic Covenant? God promises to make Abraham a great nation and bless all his descendants, which is then further unfolded by the Davidic Covenant. The the next covenant doesn't cancel out the one prior. It continually unfolds God's plan. So what is the Davidic Covenant? God's unconditional promise which God promises to send the Messiah through the line of David and through the tribe of Judah, and this Messiah would establish not a temporal kingdom, but an eternal kingdom that would last forever and ever and ever. And then this is fully unfolded in the new covenant. This is why we care, because we're Gentiles and we've been grafted in. What is the new covenant? God's promise that he will forgive sin and restore those whose hearts trust in Christ. The new covenant gives us the clearest picture of God's plan for humanity. So Haggai, here's what he's doing. In reference to the Mosaic covenant, undergirded by the Abrahamic covenant, tells God's people that he will build a house greater than this one. In other words, get your mind off the second temple because there's more to come. Do the work. Be encouraged. I'm with you. He's referring to the coming king of the Messiah. He's referring to the new Jerusalem of Revelation. The Israelites miss the greater point because they're so focused on the physical temple. How do we know this? Here's a couple things you can write down. If you look at the last verses of 2 Chronicles chapter 36, the Lord, and I'm going to summarize here, the Lord has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. So we see this beginning to happen in Haggai, by the way. Right here in 2 Chronicles is beginning to take place in Haggai. The second temple is being rebuilt. And then you can skip over to 2 Samuel 7, 16. And in summary, here's what he says. I will build a house and a throne and a kingdom, and it will be established, and it will last forever. And it will house all the nations. So how do we know Haggai is not talking about this second temple? How do we know Haggai is pointing to something that it is to come? Here's how we know. Solomon's temple, it didn't last forever. We can fast forward in history. This second temple, it didn't last forever. Rome destroyed it just like Babylon did in 70 AD. Solomon's dead. David's dead. There's not been an everlasting king yet, right? The kings continue to die. So the kingdom and the throne and the temple that we see throughout the Old Testament promises has not yet arrived. So Haggai could not be merely referring to this second temple. Don't get me wrong. The rebuilding of the temple is important because God told him to do it. Because that's how God still meets with his people at this time. It's still important. So do it and do it to glorify me. But there's a greater point here. And in fact, they're suffering from what I believe to be the same mistake that the Pharisees suffered from in John chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. Listen to what it says. So the Jews said to him, that is to Jesus, what sign do you show for us doing these things? And Jesus answered, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So remember, by the time Jesus comes to earth, let's just catch up a little bit. 
Zerubbabel's temple, the second temple that was started in Haggai, is complete. And furthermore, Herod the Great actually did a pretty sweet refurbishment of it over the last 45, 50 years. So when Jesus is saying this to them, this temple's still standing, right? This temple hasn't been destroyed yet. So, so he's, he's telling them this. And when he says he's referring to the temple of his body, Jesus would die by crucifixion and overcome death through resurrection in three days. And after he resurrects, he then ascends to heaven, right? And he leaves his Holy Spirit to dwell in the hearts of believers, Acts chapter 2. So in other words, once God met with his people in a physical temple, and soon for these guys, but now for us, he meets with us through Jesus Christ. So you can imagine how this landed on the Pharisees' ears. <laughs> like, what are you talking about, man? Like, we've already been through this. Babylon destroyed our magnificent temple and took us into exile. And God restored us and brought us back to our homeland. And throughout the, the last 50 years, we've rebuilt the second temple. And Herod's on board. What are you talking about? They totally miss it. This promise of God's spirit, it actually echoes what Pastor Michael showed us in Joel 2, 28. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. And then this is repeated again in Acts 2 as they're preaching at Pentecost. We, God's people, those that have a relationship with Christ, have become the temple. We become the temple. We have the hope of glory. So when Haggai says, the Lord will fill the house with glory, when Haggai says, the latter glory will be greater than the former, when Haggai says, in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts, all of this points to the coming Messiah. The mystery has been revealed in the words of Paul. Jesus is the fullness of God's glory. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. His house is large enough for the nation's Revelation 5. And one day, his promise will be fully complete when he returns. So Haggai's like, guys, be encouraged. Be obedient. Work. God is with you. Rebuild the temple. Reprioritize God's glory. Be obedient. But don't lose hope because there's more to come. So as Haggai continues, after pushing them to keep working, the Israelites actually develop an incorrect understanding related to how someone becomes clean. Look at verses 10 through 19. I'll just read all of them and then reference back to them. On the 24th day of the ninth month, the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat, in the fold of his garment, and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answers and says, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hand, And what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. 
I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn from me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed in the barn yet? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. Here's the summary. The Israelites believe that if they merely come to the temple, they become clean. Instead, what they should understand is that their personal sin actually makes the temple unclean. So, particularly verse 14, Haggai says this, So it is with the people and with the nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Although God's people have begun to obey and they are rebuilding the temple, their work for the Lord does not negate the fact that they are still sinful and the Lord is holy. The same is true for us. Work for God matters. But if you've hung your hat on work for God, for salvation, it has the same outcome. You see, the Old, context, the old, the old Testament concept of holiness is to be set, set apart. So from the understanding of this concept, we must consider the transferability of holiness. In other words, how do we become clean? Because they are unclean, when they touch something, it too becomes unclean. I'm unclean, I touch Bryce, Bryce becomes unclean. Simple concept. Another way is needed. There's a major problem. Fast forward to the book of John once again. I like John. I like, I like John Guyer, but I also like the book of John. Jesus totally turns this idea of clean and unclean upside down. Okay? Prior to Jesus, when they're ceremonially clean and touch something unclean, what happens? They become unclean. Then they have to go ceremonially wash again and become clean. And if they touch something else unclean, they become unclean. Jesus is the total opposite. When Jesus touches something unclean, it then becomes clean. He can forgive sin. He can make you clean. We see this over and over and over and over again. And this is an incredible concept to a Jew because they don't understand this. In the same manner, Haggai reminds them of their uncleanliness and then provides a solution. He says, a good quote, I don't know if I'll put it in your notes, but it says, Haggai uncovered and laid embarrassingly bare a need for repentance on the part of the people if their efforts at restoration were to enjoy the blessing and acceptance from God for which they hoped. The situation was desperate, but in the unit that follows, the prophet moves to the matter of resolution. So in verses 15 through 19, Haggai brings forth the necessity of obedience. In verse 15 and 16, he says, Consider from this day onward, how did you fare in your disobedience? In other words, remember, when you were disobedient, even the toil of your land was unproductive. God was even taking that from you, as he promised. And you were discontent, and you were frustrated, and you were angry, and you were sad because you were pursuing the 12 most important things to this lady that authored that article I read you. He didn't say that to them, but I'm saying it to you. You pursued those things over God. And then in verse 17 through 19, he reminds them that the days of their obedience have only been a short time. It's kind of like when one of my children is disobedient, and then for like a split second they obey, and then they want a reward. And we're like, you just started obeying. You've only been obeying for like one second, which is pretty typical in a lot of my kids' lives. He's like, 
you've only been obeying for the short time. The, the time for fruit will come. But at this point, the seed's not in the barn yet. Like, don't get ahead of yourself. Keep pursuing God. Remember, the Lord said, I am with you. It's this concept of Emmanuel that we see in the New Testament. Trust in me. God is saying through Haggai, trust in me. And this will result in obedience. True faith results in obedience. And when you don't obey, true faith results in quick repentance. And God says to the Israelites and then to us in the new covenant, if you have faith, I will bless you. As the full promise and plan is revealed through Jesus, we trust in him for salvation and our faith produces fruit. Further, just as we initially repented, turned away from our sin, when we find ourselves in sin, we daily seek God in humble repentance, knowing that we're still unclean. We're not fully restored yet. One day we will be. So keep at it. Keep pursuing God. And he's with you. As we come to the end of the book, Haggai finishes his message to God's people with the promise that the Lord is raising up a new leader. Look at verses 20 through 23. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheltiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I've chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So in verse 21, Haggai is painting this picture of something more than just Zerubbabel becoming king. The language here in the words of well-known commentators Patterson and Hill communicate more. They say this, Haggai's vision of God shaking the heavens and the earth parallels Isaiah 13, 13 and Joel 3, 16. The image is one of divine wrath. God's fierce anger unleashed against the wicked for their rebellion against him and the oppression of his people Israel. The prophet was holding out the hope of nothing less than a universal reordering of all things and the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. God shook the earth once before the exodus. For Haggai, this was proof enough that God possessed sufficient power to do it again. By the way, the term, my servant, pretty interesting term. We don't have time to trace it through the Old Testament, but there in verse 23, that term is used of several people throughout the Old Testament. Moses is called this. David is called this. The coming Messiah is called this. In fact, in Isaiah, he's called the suffering servant. So it carries its way throughout the scriptures all the way to Jesus. Further, Zerubbabel, he's identified in verse 23 with a signet ring. This is important because it's a symbol of kingship. Why is this important? Because Zerubbabel becomes king? Sure, that's important, I guess. Uh, But most importantly, or theologically, he is restoring the line of David. Remember the covenant, the Davidic covenant? I will bring you a Messiah through the line of David. So everything's been destroyed. They've been exiled. They've been brought home. And now God is continually and faithfully fulfilling his promise. The line of David is back intact, and you can trace it all the way to Jesus. So this rekindles the messianic hope for a Jew that knew their history, which, by the way, most children uh, by, I guess, teen years typically would, ha- would have had the entire Pentateuch memorized. 
Um, and so they know their history. Patterson and Hill continue. I think this is helpful. They say his message is a pledge that God intends to fulfill the new covenant promises announced by Jeremiah and Ezekiel concerning the descendant of David. So Haggai is telling God's people not to lose hope. Keep up the work. There is more to come. Trust the Lord and keep working for his glory. Now this resonates with us, or at least it should, church. So how should we respond? Should we do more tonight? Maybe we leave tonight and we go do more. Or maybe we follow some certain steps or we reorder every priority in our life. After all, I could probably create quite the list of things for me to do in my own personal life if I wanted to. But instead of going that route and crafting for ourselves what I think would be a man-made need-to-do list, here's what I want you to do. And I think I speak for Michael. Here's, Here's what your pastors would ask you to do. Seek Christ. Delight in Christ. Pursue Christ. Press into Christ. You know, this weekend, uh, Amy and I, we finally came home. I forgot how long it took the stomach flu to make its way through seven people. It was quite the trip, extended trip. But we got home, and I knew, and Michigan's a little different. You know, down where we're from, we would have planted vegetables a year, a month, a year, it seems like a year ago, a month ago. Um, but this, this weekend, I knew, Amy and I were like, if we're going to get vegetables in, we got to get them in the ground this weekend. So I couldn't get my tiller um, running. I honored God in my frustration the whole time while I was trying to fix it. Just kidding. Um, but what we ended up having to do was we had to hand till uh, four raised beds. There is a place in hell for that. I'm just, just going to say it. It was awful. It was hot. It was awful. We were on our knees. There was a lot of dirt, a lot of hours. There were numerous times where we, we felt like we were almost done and then I'd like run a rake over the top and I'm like, there's more, there's more weeds and there's more, there's more stuff here that shouldn't be here. Like, this is awful. I think God is like, this is awful. It was bad. And so we kept finding snaking sprigs of grass and all this growth that would be super unhelpful to at least edible vegetables. And, you know, I was joking with Amy as we were kind of talking through Haggai a little bit. Um, I told her, I was like, this is off. I'm sure this is a lot like what the Holy Spirit feels like when he's digging in our hearts. You know, the sin in our hearts is super rampant, in case you were wondering. It's in your motives. It's in your thoughts. It's in your actions. It's where you put your money oftentimes. And I'm going to tell you right now, there's more to do in those beds. You could go to our beds right now, even though we've planted them, and you could find more roots and roots and weeds and all kinds of stuff that you didn't want there. The Spirit of God is totally different. The Spirit of God has to illuminate the sin, and then the Spirit of God has to weed it out. That's not something you and I can do. We can respond to the Holy Spirit, but the, the Spirit of God has to do the work, or otherwise the change is not real. Uh, you know. And as I thought about this, and I thought about the need of the Spirit of God to illuminate us, it goes back to my call to seek God, because what I don't want you to do is go do more things. I want you to find some time, just you and God, and ask him, what do you need to root out? A few examples that came to mind. How often is greed couched quietly in the mask of good money management? 
Or how about the love of pleasure more than the love of God secretly thriving under the veil of we need a restful vacation? Or how about the indulgence of stuff hidden deep in the sinful pit under the tidy lid of good stewardship of our homes or of our stuff? Or what about the fear of man or improper high regard for man over the Lord, excused by our pursuit of social media? Are all these things bad? No, of course not. You can be on social media and honor God. You need to honor your God through money. You need to be a good steward of your stuff. But the love of any of these things, the pursuit of any of these things over God, over the love and the pursuit of God, must be weeded out. And I can't do that for you. Michael can't do that for you. Your spouse can't do that for you. Your friend can't do that for you. You can't do that for you. Only the Spirit of God can. So simply put, I want you to find some time to talk and to listen to Jesus. And I want you to ask him through the power of his spirit to reveal to you areas in your life that you're not prioritizing. And here's the deal. He will make it clear, and he's not going to answer you in some audible voice. He's answered you in his word. But through prayer and through your time in the scriptures and through his church, which is why it's important for you to be a part of this family, and through the spirit, he will answer you. And just like Haggai says to Israel, stop pursuing things other than God. Stop pursuing comfort. Prioritize God. I think that's what the scripture calls us to do tonight. Here's what I do know. If you ask the Lord to do these things, he's faithful to show you. And further, he's provided the Spirit of God to guide us and to help us and to comfort us and to convict us along the way. So there's no list of what to do tonight. Seek Christ and let him shed light on the areas in your life that need work. And then respond in obedience. He's with you. Let's pray.